The climate risk is very real, right? That we know that there are pension funds and other, you know, institutional investors out there that are divesting from oil and gas, not moving into it. Hello and welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. This week, my colleague Ben Cahill talks with Artem Abramoff and Casey Merriman about what's next for U.S. shale production. Artem is with Rystead Energy, where he is partner and head of shale research, and Casey is with Energy Intelligence, where she is the editorial director for Western Hemisphere and head of competitive intelligence. Artem and Casey bring a wealth of experience about the U.S. oil and gas sector. They look at recent production trends for U.S. shale and what that might indicate for the upcoming year. They also take a look at investment trends for the sector and how that could change things in the five to seven year time frame and is causing some to worry about U.S. production levels and energy security. Finally, they discuss some recent moves by the administration, including those around oil and gas drilling on public lands. I'll turn it over to Ben now for this great discussion. Um, Artem, let me start with you. Maybe you could just start by doing a level setting exercise and giving us a sense of the, the state of the U.S. oil and gas sector. So can you tell us a little bit about Rystad's estimate of current oil and gas production in the U.S., maybe both shale and non-shale, and what's your forecast for the exit rate this year? Yeah, thank you, Ben. This is a great question. I think it will be fair to say that uh, this year we were hearing a lot about the general maintenance mode for the industry. But I guess in reality, it's, it's very important to realize that the industry has actually been able to deliver quite significant production recovery already this year. So as of today, I believe that nationwide oil output is close to 11.7 million barrels a day, which essentially corresponds to around 600,000 barrels a day growth uh, compared to where we were in December 2020. And, you know, this year it was quite difficult to actually understand where this maximum production capacity for the country is. We had so many industry-wide outages, like winter crisis back in February. Uh, we had Hurricane Ida, uh, which resulted in significant curtailments in Gulf of Mexico. Now, almost everything is back online. Everything that can produce is producing. And 11.7 is kind of the production capacity for the country today. And I think this level will be maintained throughout the winter months this year. On the gas side, uh, we are already all, uh, basically back to pre-COVID production records. I think we are very close to 97 BCF a day. Most of this growth came uh, in the second half of the year and all core gas regions like Haynesville, uh, associated gas in the Permian, uh, but also Appalachia Basin, all these regions, they contributed to this production growth in the recent months. Yeah. So Artem, when we think about where the, the capital is flowing, is that because most of these shale plays just can't compete with the Permian in terms of competition for capital efficiency there versus other, other shale basins? That, uh, it's, it's largely, it's one very important factor. You know, Permian still offers uh, the deepest tier one inventory. Uh, most operators who are active there, they have uh, at least 15 to 20 years of uh, tier one activity at the current pace. Uh, in many cases, we are talking about even deeper inventory, uh, and there are so many, uh, I would say, deeper lending intervals where modern uh, completion techniques, they haven't really been tested yet. But with the current market fundamentals, all these deeper lending zones, they are quite commercial again. Uh, so at least they work from economic perspective. So n nothing has really changed since the start of COVID in this manner. Permian is still 
more or less infinite low-cost source of supply. In other basins like Bach and Egerfort, they are more mature. In many acreage positions, we're already talking about the depletion of the core inventory. But also it's uh, a lot about uh, portfolio diversification because there are quite many companies uh, which started from Bach and Egerfort, but they entered the permit in the recent years. So they use the cash flow they generate from their assets in Bakken and Egofort uh, to actually finance their growth programs uh, in the Permian. Casey, let me bring you into the conversation at this point and start talking about the, the corporate angles and the corporate drivers here. So you follow corporate strategies closely. We're recording this just after the Thanksgiving holiday at the very tail end of November. We've had earnings calls in the last month or so. We've definitely picked up some signals about how companies are thinking about next year. But I think the striking thing is that these companies are generating a huge amount of free cash flow with prices at this level. So I wonder if you could just start by talking a little bit about, you know, the profitability for the shale industry with prices somewhere around $70 for WTI and how the companies are doing with prices at this level, you know, both the larger independents and some of the smaller players. Um, Give us a feel for, you know, how well the industry is doing right now and what kind of returns. Yeah, I think I would kind of maybe break up the industry into some different buckets, right? So... I think if we look at the private sector companies, they have operated kind of pulling the the old school shale playbook out, right? So prices rise, rig counts rise, number of wells drilled rise. They have been a huge uh, catalyst for that recovery that Artem mentioned in terms of you know production's sequential growth over the course of the year. And at some point, they will kind of hit a ceiling, right? This is, it's only a, a certain segment of the sector that will kind of top out in terms of, of their growth potential. So then you're kind of looking at the private sector companies that really move the needle kind of longer term and on, on bigger bigger chunks of production. And, and again, as Artem mentioned, uh, they have been more in a, in a maintenance mode this year. They entered the year with budgets more or less set for a $40 WTI oil price, and they they have not layered in capex on top of that. That doesn't mean that they have not adapted at all to their plans, right? But really the focus has been using 2021 as a transition year from last year where they've pulled back extremely hard on activity and absorbed pretty steep declines in production. So they want to move from that to something that is more sustainable, right? So the idea being that there has been a lot of uncertainty still in the market. Demand isn't quite back to pre-COVID levels. We're, we're still in in, in some uncertain times with that, there's a lot of spare production capacity globally that is still on the sidelines within the OPEC plus producer group. And so they don't want to kind of get ahead of things despite what a $70, $75 oil price could get them. And so, uh, as you said, Ben, they have tons of cash. I mean, they are swimming in cash flows at this point. You know, just kind of the 20 major public Oil-weighted producers uh, have pulled in almost $36 billion in free cash flow in nine months this year, right? And um, a lot of that reflects that kind of hard ceiling that they put on, on reinvestment. And so why they've kind of stuck with that beyond kind of the market fundamental standpoint is that the U.S. shale sector is a sector that frankly destroyed billions of dollars in capital over the past decade, right? They're over um, exuberance helped crash prices in 2014, helped crash prices in 2016. And a lot of investors fled 
you know, this again, this is pre-COVID and just said, you know what, we're, we're kind of done with you. And so what oil producers have had to do is say, hey, look, you know, we will be good stewards of your money. We will invest with returns in mind. We will also not maximize every dollar we put in the drill bit. We will pay you handsome dividends and we will grow those dividends and we will repurchase shares when when times are good and you know we'll basically give you a piece of pie and that's exactly what they've been doing so we have seen companies you know reinstate suspended dividends you know promise increases they have a number of companies like a devon energy or pioneer uh, have come up with these variable dividend structures where you basically get a, a percentage of the excess cash on hand and, and overwhelmingly companies have agreed to buy back shares. So there's a lot of different kind of factors in play that are determining how much money kind of gets put back into the drill bit. And so, like I said, this year should be kind of thought of as almost like a transition year. Yeah, let me follow up on that, Casey. I mean, you mentioned the, the reinvestment rates. So obviously the, the watchword for the whole industry has been capital discipline in this period. And as you mentioned, that's something that was lacking for many, many years where we saw growth year after year after year, but it was profitless growth for investors, right? And investors obviously became fed up with that. So I wonder if we could talk a little bit more about what this means to a management team. You know, do you have a hard target, a ceiling on your reinvestment rate? You know, do you have a plan for, you know, upside for oil prices translating directly into share buybacks or, or increased dividends? How's that working for different types of companies? So again, this year should be seen as a bit of an anomaly. I, in the first nine months, that same group of roughly 20 producers I talked about has only reinvested about 38% of their cash flows from operations, right? That number is not sustainable and not expected to be sustainable by management teams or investors, right? I, th I think a lot of the companies that have put a number around it typically talk about kind of a 55 to 65% reinvestment rate ratio as kind of an ideal target, but it's not kind of like a blank check where they're going to look at their incoming cash and always write to that percentage, right? What they're trying to articulate is that they're trying to find a balance between what goes back in the drill bit and what goes to investors. And if you were in, in trying to find something that is sustainable on a year over year basis, these are depleting businesses, right? You have to have a certain baseline of reinvestment just to keep things steady. And if the global market needs more oil, then producers stand ready to provide that oil, right? I think that's really, really important. It, it, growth is not off the table. It's kind of how do you do it with returns and not being compromised? And how do you not get ahead of what that kind of call on US oil is? Yeah, that's one thing that you've written about, it, I think, a few times that we shouldn't expect that there will be no growth next year. It's just a moderated level of growth, right? It's growth within certain parameters. Exactly. Yeah. Capital discipline does not mean no growth. I will be on the soapbox for that. <laughs> no, it's an important message. I think that it's kind of the, the nuances of that are often are often lost. I want to come back to this question about maintenance capital because I think it's, it's, it's pretty important. But Artem, let me turn back to you. You gave a good recap of what's happened this year. Can you talk a little bit about what is RiceFed's outlook for next year for the shale patch in the United States? And I wonder if you could touch on some of the unknowns in the shale outlook. I mean, it's it's really hard to predict where the U.S. shale sector goes. Um, surprises happen all the time. We have seen some variables crop up in recent months, like 
you know, drill bit uncompleted wells or ducts, those seem to have declined quite a bit. So I think there's some speculation that we need a lot of investment just to build up that inventory again. So maybe you could talk about ducts, some of the uncertainties about uh, service sector costs and how costs for the sector will evolve. But yeah, I'd love to hear your, your general overview of the sector heading into next year. Yeah, so I think on the production side, uh, I would first of all say that uh, we're talking about 700,000 barrels growth next year for the U.S. oil. And that's a part which is uh, visible and it's largely based on the activity we are already seeing and some preliminary plants uh, the companies are talking for 2022. So uh, I think the growth will still be biased quite a lot towards private operators uh, and also selected super majors uh, like ExxonMobil also Chevron and BP uh, to a lesser extent. But a lot of private operators, which um, Casey talked about, this year, actually, many of them haven't really uh, grown too much uh, on the production side. But many of them were building new inventory uh, of uh, all the wells to support their growth capacity next year. And uh, only in quarter one, 2022, we think uh, that their completion activity will finally catch up somewhat elevated rate of drilling. And then, uh, you know, super majors, we, we really shouldn't forget about companies like Exxon or Chevron, because even though there is this general uh, perception that uh, they gave up on their long-term growth ambitions from the permanent, uh, this is not what we actually seen. Exxon still has very large inventory of drilled and completed wells accumulated in 2018-2019. Uh, essentially, they still have around 200 abnormal ducts, not the wells which were drilled in the last few months. And this year, they were actually completing them pretty actively. So they completed more wells uh, in the Permian this year than they did in 2020 or in 2019. And that was enough to basically achieve new production records. And even next year, you know, Exxon is running 10 rigs in the Permian compared to 60 in early 2020, but they don't need to increase uh, rig counts to continue growing next year. So the DC inventory is still sufficient to achieve some double digit growth rate numbers. So, uh, of course, there are quite many potential bottlenecks and challenging, uh, challenges, essentially some risks. Uh, for example, supply chain uh, is a serious concern. To some extent, it's not that different from the situation we saw in the previous upcycle in 2017. Uh, we saw significant labor cost inflation, actually shortage of labor, uh, for example, in the tracking segments, a lot of sand suppliers, and pressure pumpers, they were reporting uh, this sh uh, shortage already in early 2021. Now, many of these um, challenges, they became even more severe. So essentially, the timing of this growth, I, I think it will be kind of backloaded. So most of the growth will come in the second half of 2022. I'm sure that the service sector companies are, are pretty optimistic about this outlook, see a lot of activity and, and also some price increases for their services. So it sounds like the companies are kind of baking that into their forecasts. Yeah, so I think uh, large service companies like uh, Schlumberger Halliburton, they were quite surprised uh, by the magnitude of sector recovery already this year. And uh, especially in the U.S. land, a lot of incremental service revenues came from private operators, which made the decision to increase activity already in the middle of the year. Uh, whereas uh, public producers, as Casey said, uh, they haven't really deviated too much from the original budgets. And all these public producers, they locked in cheap service rates in the beginning of the year, but now they have to accept actually much higher pricing because private producers, they sort of uh, warmed up the spot rates uh, in the service industry. Artem, let me stick with you for a minute and, and talk about something both of you have mentioned already, which is this idea of, of maintenance production levels. 
in the U.S. Shale Patch. So Casey already mentioned that you know the production levels and and the spending was not sustainable. If we want to have sustainable production in the United States, I just wonder if you can speak a little bit about how that picture of maintenance capex is evolving for the sector. You know, we mentioned that this is an industry that has continual decline rates. You always need to replenish. Uh, that pipeline, you need to increase drilling activity, just maintain production at flat levels. Again, there's this uncertainty about inventory of ducks. Can you explain a little bit about, you know, how much investment is needed to just keep stable production levels of something like 11.5, 12 million barrels a day production in the United States sustainable without a really sharp increase in, in CapEx throughout the sector? No, I, I, I first of all agree with the statement that uh, 2021 should uh, be viewed uh, as a transition or transformation year for the industry. I don't think we'll uh, live in this environment with very low reinvestment rates uh, forever. And, uh, you know, there, there are many factors uh, which could actually push reinvestment rates upwards in future even if business model of public producers stays the same. For example, now we are living in the environment with quite significant regulatory uncertainty, you know, whether it's uh, how various tax incentives for the oil industry will be treated in future or future of activity on federal land and waters, federal methane fee, new EPA regulations. So many of these things are yet to become clear for the industry. But if we end up in the environment with some additional costs due to the changes in regulatory environments. I think it won't really uh, lead to more conservative supply outlook, but uh, the industry will actually use this as an argument to increase uh, reinvestment rates uh, due to these incremental costs. That's, uh, that's just one driver. But uh, also the general operational philosophy of large independent producers today, they really want to see free things happening before they go back to more aggressive growth programs. So one thing uh, which most of them talked about is storage level, uh, getting back to five-year average or even lower. And that has already happened, at least in the US. But it's also about more structural global demand recovery to pre-COVID uh, levels. And uh, now we actually see some downside risks materializing. And then it's also a full impact of supply reactivation from OPEC plus, uh, Saudi, Russia, and other OPEC producers. So essentially, they want to see that role really needs more oil from the U.S. Yeah, that's a really good overview, among other things, of kind of the macro signals that the companies are looking for. Casey, let me turn to you with a, a similar question. You know, when we think about corporate drivers and you know, the signals that management, company management is looking for, what do they need in, in order to move from this, this kind of maintenance capex philosophy towards growth and towards moderated growth? How are they making sense of these macro drivers that, that Arta mentioned? Yeah, well, I think actually the, the macro drivers are hugely influential. And what's interesting is it's not necessarily management teams on their own deciding that that's the case, right? I mean, what, what we have basically seen is investors paying attention to uh, global market fundamentals in a way we really have not seen before, right? Because before it was just, we want you to grow, right? Because if you grow, then you you will give us returns in that way. And we just want a high yield investment vehicle. And what, what could possibly go wrong with, with that being the only driver? So, you know, I think what we have seen is some tepid feeling out of 2022 plans that say, look, we want to present you with kind of a range and it's it's a disciplined range but it gives us some space to growth we're not going to necessarily deliver that think of it as slow and steady and in response to the market but we are 
and this is, I think, really key to a, a couple points Artem has made about kind of gearing up, right? We're preparing ourselves for that. Where we we want to put in some more rigs. We want to kind of get our operations to most efficient level of optimization, right? Because they're not quite there yet, right? They they still have those reins on. So it's really about getting the pieces in place where when those macro signals come through, then they are in a kind of a good position to start moving quickly as opposed to getting the ball rolling then. And I think that's really, really what we're seeing. So it's it's trying to ensure that it will be disciplined, but that the capacity is there to move. And, and I, I think that's really important. Yeah, and I think you've written about this and others have too, that you know, some growth, fine, we can expect some growth from the sector, but still the priority is going to be repairing their balance sheets, paying down debt, you know, holding those reinvestment rates to a certain level, and then allocating whatever extra cash they make towards increased dividends and share buybacks. So it sounds like a very cautious message to investors that maybe we can do this, but only after we've taken care of the top three financial priorities. Is that fair? Yeah, no, I think that's definitely fair. And I think one thing that's actually really important to understand too that's happened this year because there's been so much cash flow that wasn't kind of expected is in in some ways, the kind of surviving shale sector, large portions of it are in the best financial health that's kind of ever been, right? I mean, they've been able to hugely repair balance sheets. They're able to kind of do almost all things at once in a way that they haven't before. And so again, it, it kind of, it sets the stage for just a bit more of a stability in terms of how the U.S. can respond, even though it will be tempered from the growth rates we saw in the past. Well, this brings me to another question for you, Casey, which is whether or not we see investors changing their tune on the sector. So. I mean, these companies are generating a mountain of free cash flow. And as you said, with oil at 70 to $80 a barrel, everything works. You can accomplish multiple priorities at once. I just wonder how the view of the shale patch is changing from the, from the standpoint of investors. I mean, to step back a little bit, you have a lot of people now saying with you know these huge run-up in energy prices in Europe for gas and electricity, increased gasoline prices in the United States, it's highlighted for a lot of people that there has been a huge decline in investment over the last five to seven years since 2014. There's a lot of focus on energy security again. That term has come back into, into vogue a bit. So from an investor standpoint, what does this mean? Does it mean they're going to tolerate more growth? Does it mean they have more confidence in the sector? Yeah. So, I mean, I think there is a, a segment of investors that are not going to come back to oil and gas, right? And, and for two reasons, climate risk, right? Which we kind of haven't really talked about. And then it's just, you know, capital allocation risk. They just got burned and it's just not something they're going to want to touch again. The climate risk is very real, right? That we know that there are pension funds and, and other, you know, institutional investors out there that are divesting from oil and gas, not moving into it, and certainly w- would not want to increase weighting. Um, and that that is a reality. But there was talk kind of in the depths of, of COVID of whether the capital markets door was, was going to shut on oil and gas, right? And that door was going to kind of firm and close. And that's, that is not the case, right? So there is a, a willingness and a kind of, I think, a rising need and understanding that investment is needed, that for today, 
we still have very, very robust global oil and gas demand. And then if you and if you are talking about needing to potentially meet that demand in the medium term, then short cycle supplies like shale are a very attractive place to get it from, right? And they don't carry quite the same risk as say financing a 30 year, you know, long, long term project. We're seeing that kind of movement shake out. It becomes more of a financial question with demanding of companies like don't burn us again, right? If you if you want the door to stay open to oil and gas capital in the medium term, then this is your chance, right? This is almost kind of like your last chance to get buy-in, but there are investors out there that are willing to give it to them. And I think that's really, really important and critical in the industry's kind of understanding. They're on a bit of a short leash, but the leash is there. Artem, do you have thoughts on this theme of capital availability for the industry and how it's evolving? Yeah, so uh, I guess uh, well, we still see that, uh, that the, the equity markets, uh, they're not really close to the U.S. land oil producers, uh, but we have seen very limited amount of new acquisitions, uh, you know, the start to this price recovery. So to some extent, there is definitely a certain group of investors, and I think we are mainly talking about smaller investment funds. Uh, they're not getting back uh, on many occasions to oil and gas. At least that's uh, how they see the future right now. And you know, uh, from uh, my perspective, for example, uh, from Rested Energy's actually perspective, we definitely saw a big change in the typical workflows of our investor clients uh, when it comes to the data. You know, in past it was a lot of uh, technical type curve or decline curve analysis. Now, majority of investor clients they're first of all focused on macro, understanding the macro picture and how it will play out going forward. Still, um, if you talk, for example, about some large institutional investors, uh, I think a pretty interesting observation which we have made recently was that they actually increased their ownership, the percentage of stocks owned by large institutional investors in large public title independents has increased quite significantly uh, in the last few quarters. So they uh, basically acknowledge that to some extent this new business model is maybe more sustainable. They're still not fully convinced uh, that the industry will always operate in this manner. But uh, as of today, uh, they can accept this model. If they enter now, it's, a, it's quite a good investment for most of them. At least it has been in the last few quarters. Uh, and finally, I, I would like to bring up another a very significant group, private equity community, because uh, we definitely saw, uh, even before COVID downturn, uh, we saw a big outflow of capital on the private side. Uh, you know, it was a big up cycle in 2016, 2017, 2018, and already in 2019, new uh, private equity programs, the number of them have been uh, was quite limited. So a lot of private equity firms, they started moving out somewhat away from oil and gas towards alternative energy sources. But now they're actually in the environment when they simply don't have sufficient number of capital allocation opportunities outside of oil and gas. So some large private equity groups, really specialized energy focus groups like NCAP or Quantum Energy Partners, we're seeing them starting some new private equity programs. So it has happened already this year. And we think these trends, uh, you know, the, the number of new programs will pick up uh, further in 2022. And Ben, I just want to add one thing. I would definitely agree with everything our team just laid out. But, you know, one thing to consider, too, since we did 
kind of, kind of briefly tip the kind of climate risk element to it, you know, companies have not been sitting still on that front by any means. I mean, there's definitely a recognition that if, if you want buy-in, you, you have to understand that the, the kind of onus on you to address the emissions footprint of that oil and gas uh, is in, very important, right? So it's kind of like become a minimum standard. What are you going to do to address the operational emissions footprint of your business? And so what we have seen is across the board, almost the most movement in terms of targets and plans among U.S. independents over the past year with, you know, the, with long-term plans to reach net zero on their operations to, you know, um, plans to eliminate routine flaring, this, that, and the other. So with that kind of acceptance of, yes, we, we need oil and gas and, and we see your place in it, uh, you know, we need you to kind of be responsible stewards and be mindful of this as well. So I think that's really an important thing we've seen as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you look at investor decks, anytime there's a big M&A deal, the ESG messaging is front and center. How is this going to help this company further its ESG goals? It's pretty clear that, that investor pitch is hugely important to any big transaction that a company makes. Well, let me pivot to a slightly different topic. You know, I'm based in Washington, D.C., so I have to ask a question about White House policy on public lands. So oil and gas production on public lands is not a huge proportion of U.S. oil and gas output, but it is quite important including in some shale place uh, like the Permian in New Mexico. So I wonder what both of you think about the outlook for drilling and production on public lands and what producers think about the policy signals coming from the White House. Uh, we just had a report that came out last Friday, Friday news dump just after Thanksgiving on uh, the Department of Interior's guidance for future um, oil and gas leasing and, and policy on public lands. So I'd love to get your thoughts on that. And maybe Casey, I'll stick with you to start and then turn to you, Artem, for your thoughts afterwards. I mean, one of the things that I think is maybe an important maybe case study of sorts is when we had the permitting moratorium, it was temporary and it expired kind of quietly. But heading into that, there was a lot of concern among producers that the administration could have a lot of soft tools at its disposal to still kind of impede uh, or bottleneck activity on public lands, right? You know, you could just suddenly make the criteria for getting a permit to be very onerous, or, you know, you could underfund the office and it would just take, you know, as long as possible to get a permit. Like like those kinds of things where, you know, it's might be kind of questionable on, on the legality of it, but it, it could cause some headaches. And time and again, when I've had a chance to ask, you know, executives in the industry, has this been a thing? The answer is unequivocally no. It is business as usual. We are able to get what we need done. We are not seeing any residual effects of this. It's as if it kind of didn't happen. And so I think that it's really important to kind of understand, especially because there is so much current pressure and spotlight around a retail energy prices, that this is not likely to be a point of near-term contention. Now, they maybe separate that from maybe long-term resource access, right, where the administration is still pushing back around leasing and that kind of thing. I kind of think about it in those two buckets, and, and we're really not seeing uh, tangibly on the ground a lot of interference, uh, you know, despite, you know, what you may see or read. Yeah. No, that's a good point. I mean, if you look at drilling permits, there hasn't really been a, a noticeable downturn in, in activity. 
Um, Arthur, let me turn to you with the same question. What's your outlook or Reistad's outlook on production on public lands? Any trends worth highlighting? How are producers dealing with you know some of the uncertainty or the, the signals coming from Washington? Yeah, so I, I would uh, probably agree that we didn't see any impact on the actual operations. You know, uh, when, for example, temporary moratorium uh, was in place or in the months preceding that. The reality is a little bit more complicated because um, there is no full visibility on the industry side in terms of what the administration can do from a legal perspective, uh, you know, to actually affect oil and gas activity there. But in theory, even if you have a permit for future location, you need to build water pipeline infrastructure, governing lines, many of these things, they're typically permitted uh, just a few months before actual drilling or completion works. And if we end up in the world with some form of right-of-way restrictions on federal lands, then a lot of these uh, permitted locations, they will actually become inaccessible. So I would say that there are still some concerns, but I think the industry also became a little bit more positive that this is maybe no longer a number one priority for the administration compared to you know many other things which is currently being discussed. The lease ban on federal land and water, this is much bigger concern for Gulf of Mexico producers, especially from a long-term perspective. Again, if we don't get any new lease rounds in Gulf of Mexico, we will not see any impact on production or activity levels in the next seven to eight years because everything comes from existing fields and uh, the leases uh, which have already been granted. But moving into 30s, we'll start seeing structural production decline in Gulf of Mexico, which will have to be replaced. Uh, but again, the U.S. onshore will be one of the winners uh, from this uh, potential kind of negative development in Gulf of Mexico. But uh, a lot of, for example, offshore-focused drillers and other service companies, especially those which are more exposed to exploration segments, I would say they're more concerned uh, by this uncertainty on uh, future leasing. Well, Casey, let me turn to you with the last question. It's mandatory on a podcast about U.S. oil and gas issues to talk about M&A activity. So <laughs> what's your outlook on the potential for, for M&A activity with prices elevated at these levels? Yeah, well, I mean, I think there's a couple things. One thing that's important to kind of note is that even though we have seen a bit of a cooling on the oil-weighted corporate consolidation side, you know, we have seen some really big deals with Continental Resources buying up assets in the Permian Basin, and certainly Conoco buying Shell's large position there. So you know, there's still movement of things, but I think more broadly, while maybe the negotiations and terms have to change as oil prices are more robust, you don't have companies maybe quite as distressed. Before COVID, one of the things that was really interesting to, to see was that you had very large established players, ones that you would probably think, oh, they have enough scale, you know, they're good as is, talking with peers of similar size saying, are we big enough for the challenges ahead? And that can mean everything from what Artem discussed earlier. If from a regulatory perspective, additional costs suddenly get layered in, you know, it becomes a lot better to be a very low cost, as efficient as, as possible operator. Uh, we've mentioned the ESG side. Uh, tackling emissions can be a lot easier done when you're a larger company. And of course, if you're thinking very long term, there is demand uncertainty, right? And if you are 
are staring down kind of a plateaued demand, you know, larger companies are going to generally be advantaged, assuming, of course, their costs and efficiency is in place. So that underlying kind of philosophy behind corporate consolidation is still in play. And I, and, and I think will still be a, a fundamental feature of the U.S. oil and gas space. This was great. There are always a ton of uncertainties with the U.S. oil and gas space. This is kind of the, the great uncertainty for the entire oil market heading into 2022. And I can't think of better guides through all this uncertainty than Artem and Casey. So thanks so much for being with us today. It was really great to hear from you both. Thanks to Artem, Casey, and Ben for a timely discussion on how things are looking for the future of U.S. shale. You can find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts and at CSIS.org. Follow us on Twitter for updates at CSIS Energy. And as always, thanks for listening.